0: episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. So I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on motivational enhancement. You can see I got a little snarky with the uh, design on the PowerPoints today, and we're doing something a little different. I don't do different very often, so that's big for me. Anyhow, uh, today we're going to compare and contrast uh, motivational enhancement therapy with other approaches. We're going to talk about how it differs specifically between um, cognitive behavioral and sort of Rogerian. We'll briefly review the frames approach, describe the stages of change which you've heard before, but we're going to go over them real quick again. Define, E-E-D-D-A-A-R-R-S, and ors, and then we'll explore strategies for increasing motivation. And we're really going to focus on this last one more than anything, because a lot of the rest of this stuff is kind of review, but it's necessary to provide a nice, pretty container for everything in case you don't have a background in motivational interviewing or motivational enhancement. So motivational enhancement therapy was created as a technique to use with people. And it's a four-session therapy, sometimes six, um, that you can use with people who are trying to make a behavior change. And it generally starts out with an assessment and a session then a follow up sometime later 2 weeks to a month later so they're really spaced out. So this is obviously something that's geared towards somebody who is relatively psychologically stable making a behavior change relatively motivated. But what we're doing with motivational enhancement therapy is we're saying okay, we see you want to make a change and we want to support you in that change. We want to help you to keep your motivation going because when you have high motivation, you're going to be more likely to seek out resources and the next right thing and this is really um, a technique that uses a lot of client empowerment in order to get the job done more so than specific techniques Um, the emphasis is on personal choice regarding future behavior you know it's i'm not going to tell you what to do it's what are you motivated to do and why The objective evaluation is focused on eliciting the client's own concerns. So if Jim Bob comes in and he says, you know, I'm here because my PO says I have to be here. He says I need a drug evaluation. Well, that's telling me in the beginning that Jim Bob doesn't think he has a drug problem. So I want to know what the client's concerns are. So you came. So obviously there's something motivating you to be here. What is it? And you know, I worked with um, felony probation and parole for many years, and, you know, that was not an unusual scenario. So what we would end up coming down to is um, their concern was staying out of jail and getting off probation, not so much stopping use. However, in order to stay out of jail and get off probation, they had to stop use at least for now. So it wasn't about me telling them you've got to quit and abstain forever and change your life and yada yada. It was about, okay, we have a mutual kind of goal. You want to get off papers and I want you to be successful. So let's figure out what we need to do to get there. Resistance, and this is true in motivational interviewing as well as motivational enhancement therapy. Resistance is an interpersonal behavior pattern indicating failure to accurately empathize. and that's kind of harsh i mean we may empathize i kind of twist it a little bit and say resistance shows that we have failed to understand exactly what is motivating that person to choose the alternate behavior we have failed to fully understand or grasp and it may be because we don't have all of the information yet so we may need to go and play detective and work together to figure out all right why did you choose this old behavior over the new behavior, or why is your motivation waning for making this change? But it's not necessarily about digging their heels in and being oppositional just for the sake of being oppositional. Remember, every behavior we choose, we choose because it's more beneficial, more rewarding than any of the other behaviors. And now it may be short-term reward versus long-term reward, but we'll get into those semantics later resistance in met is often met with reflection and we're going to talk about some of that but when somebody says you know i i don't have a drug problem um you know my po said i had to be here for a drug evaluation and i might ask you know okay so tell me a little bit about why you're on probation and if they say possession of cocaine i'm going to say okay um and then We go through the interview and I might summarize and say something to the effect of, um, so I'm seeing that you have a lot of charges for possession and sale of drugs and um, for things that are related to drugs, but I'm hearing you say that you don't have a problem with drugs. So this behavior out here was designed to um, help you support your family. Tell me a little bit more about how you kept getting into this situation. I'm not telling him he's got a problem. Because I've met a lot of dealers who don't use their own stuff, Um, but I am trying to understand kind of where they're coming from. Motivational enhancement therapists don't argue with clients. If we're arguing with them, what are we doing? We're telling them they're wrong, and I know better about you than you know. In reality, if they are being resistant, we are wrong, usually because we don't understand. It's not because... We're misguided. It's because we don't have the whole story. We don't understand the whole motivation. So we need to understand why they're doing that and how we could make what we want them to do more beneficial. MET doesn't impose diagnostic labels and say you're an addict or you're depressive or you're this or you're that. Um, And that's a little bit tricky when you get into uh, charting and noting and getting reimbursement and all that kind of stuff. so just kind of being aware of that. When we talk about diagnosis in um, with my clients that I'm using a motivational approach with, and I don't use MET proper. Um, I'll start that by outright saying that I don't use that particular approach um, simply because I don't feel like I have enough of a grasp of using the entire process to make it successful for my clients. So what we're talking about is the technique and the theory behind it right now. Um, But when I'm using motivational interviewing with my clients, when I'm using any motivational approach and we get to diagnosis, I don't want them to take on diagnosis as a I am an, you know, some sort of global, internal, stable attribution. I want them to have depression. I want them to, well, I don't want them to have depression. You get what I'm saying here. Um, I want them to be focusing on something that is a symptom or a condition that they have, not who they are. Because if I'm asking them to get rid of it, then, you know, it's a lot easier to get rid of something you have than get rid of something you are. Um, In MET, we don't tell clients what they must do. You know, we don't start out by saying, you know what, you're an addict, you're going to be in here, and you're going to go to all of these groups and these meetings, and this is the way it's going to be, because this is what you need, because I know best. No, what we're doing is we're eliciting from them motivation. When clients are motivated to do something, they're a lot more willing and likely to follow through than when they feel disempowered, because we're telling them what to do. Um, We don't... In MET we don't seek to break down denial through direct confrontation. And that's pretty common in a lot of different approaches to um, anything right now that's that's sort of cognitive, behavioral, or motivational in nature. We're not trying to confront them and really hammer them with this is the right way, why aren't you seeing it my way? But we're more trying to align with them and kind of get in their headspace and go, let me understand why you're seeing it this way. We don't want to imply powerlessness because if they're motivated, then they're empowered. I mean, being motivated to do something means we feel like we've got the power or the, the effectiveness to make a change, to do something. If we make them feel powerless, then they're not going to be motivated. They're just going to feel like they are be- having to react to whatever comes their way. So one of the first steps is oars. Ask open-ended questions. And I'm not always the best with that Um, when I'm going through, you know, different assessments, especially if it's a standard assessment that I'm using by whatever agency I'm working for. Making sure that you develop some places in your assessment, even if most of them are closed-ended questions, to put in some open-ended questions and engage in a discussion. With the clients instead of just trying to sit there and diagnose them um, like you're trying to solve a puzzle. Provide affirmations. Give them credit where credit is due. They showed up. That's awesome. You know, I understand, you know, for the clients that I worked with, I, I understood that most of them did not want to be there and had not a whole lot of use for me. So, and they wanted to be off papers. So my goal was to work with them to try to help them be successful so they could complete the counseling part of their probation as quickly and effectively as possible. And that didn't mean I gave them a pass. They still had to work when they were in group. But we tried to find mutually agreeable goals and objectives. Reflective listening is also important. And of course, this is like Counseling 101. But too often, again, in the assessment, we get so caught up just asking questions That we forget to listen and say, okay, so what I hear you saying is, or I'm wondering what that must have felt like, or, you know, going down a little bit deeper than what you have to have on your paper and provide frequent summaries. That's not only helps you, but it helps them because as they're going through, you might say, you know, let me, let me stop and kind of recap what I'm hearing because I'm, you know, really trying to make sure I understand everything that's going on. But the benefit to this is, and you can choose selectively when you stop to do summaries. If they're telling you, you know, the history of what's going on or whatever, and then they suddenly say something that contradicts what they said, you know, you can stop them right there or you can wait a little bit longer. And then when you summarize it, you can summarize what they said they, you know, they wanted to get off probation. They wanted to get their kids back. They wanted to get a job and really stay out of jail this time. But um, they're struggling not using marijuana or something. Um, so putting it all together so they hear the difference between what they want and what their behaviors are. So remembering our stages of change. And when you're dealing with a client, it doesn't matter, you know, what they come into your office for. There are stages of change. Pre-contemplation, they don't have a problem. They don't think they have a problem and you can't tell them they have a problem. So if they come into your office and they say, my PO said I had to be here, but I ain't got a drug problem, arguing with them is not going to get you anywhere. So we can focus on, well, the problem right now, as you see it, is that you're on probation. Okay. That is a problem. They're in a higher level of readiness for change. They're ready to fix that problem. So we want to hear what they're in pre-contemplation about versus what they're in action about so pre-contemplation they don't think they've got a problem contemplation as it sounds like they're contemplating the fact that you know maybe i use a little bit too much or maybe i watch a little too much porn or whatever it is preparation they know they've got a problem and they're thinking about what to do about it they're not sure whether they have the energy the time the whatever to commit to a change right now. They're scared. And okay, you know, change is scary. Change causes crisis and crisis causes change. So I get it. Preparation, we're going to be talking more about what's most intimidating to you about this change and what's most exciting. In the action phase, they're ready to get going. You know, they've thought about it. They realize there's a problem and they want to get going, get it over with and move on. And then maintenance, of course, is, you know, keeping those changes. What a lot of people forget is the fact that when a client comes into your office, they may be in the action stage of change for whatever their superficial presenting issue is. They're depressed or they're on probation or whatever it is. But leading up or causing those presenting issues, that's like the tip of the iceberg. Then you've got all this stuff under here that's probably prompting that that they may or may not be ready, willing, or able to change at this point. So when you're thinking about their readiness for change, yes, they want to change this up here. However, are they ready to make the other changes necessary to sustain this change? And when we deal with addictions, there's generally a lot of stuff that needs to be addressed. So we look at what are they most willing, most motivated to work on. So your basic principles, and I'm not going to say all those letters again, express empathy. So reflective listening, accurate empathy. A lot of times, especially if you're working with clients with addictions or who are um, on probation and they're involuntary clients or whatever, but even some of your mental health clients may not have ever felt like somebody took the time to hear them. They've always felt like a number. They are patient number 6543. And nobody's ever taken the time to learn who they are, learn what causes their depression, learn what causes their anxiety. They've always run into situations where they've been where people have tried to put them into holes. You're a mental health patient with schizophrenia. So you go over here in this little category. You are a mental health patient with bipolar. So we're going to put you in this little category. And that's not necessarily, well, it usually doesn't work for people because we're individual. So reflective listening is one of the first steps to establishing rapport where they walk in and you don't automatically say, okay, sit down, let's go through some paperwork And you don't make eye contact with them again for an hour and a half. That's kind of rough. So with reflective listening, it may not last that long. It may be 10 minutes of, hey, you know, my name is so-and-so. I want to get to know you. This is kind of what we're going to talk about. Do you have any questions for me before we start? Let them know what's going to happen, that you're going to have to keep your nose in the computer or write a bunch of stuff down. Um, And ask them, you know, is there anything you have concerns about? And a lot of times that will go so far in determining and in helping clients have faith that you're not going to try to just put them somewhere or do something with or to them. Develop discrepancy. Find a discrepancy between where they are and where they want to be. And that's usually pretty easy to do. But remember, you know, where they are and where, where they want to be, there may be multiple steps in there and they may be willing to do Steps one, two, four, and seven, but the rest of them, they're not real motivated for yet. So it's up to us to help increase their motivation as we go through the process for each step. We want to raise clients' awareness of the personal consequences of their behaviors, not necessarily just drinking, in order to precipitate a crisis, increasing motivation for change. Now, I'm not talking about precipitating a crisis where they are devastated. I'm talking about precipitating a crisis where there's a part of them going, you know what? You know, there might be more to this than I was thinking. I I don't want them to walk out of my office feeling completely beaten down. I want them to walk out of my office inquisitive and motivated and, you know, maybe even um, pensive, but not devastated. Avoid arguing. We're not going to have them admit a problem that they don't think they have. And even if they're in contemplation, um, you know, I'm not going to push them over to say, okay, so you agree that your drinking's a problem. So you agree you're an alcoholic. I'm not going to push them that way. We're just going to keep talking about the difference between your behaviors and your actions and reactions versus where you want to be or where you think you are right now. Roll with resistance. Encourage them to think about problems in different ways. You know, what I hear you saying is you can't imagine going your entire life without smoking another cigarette. And I can see where that would be pretty overwhelming. You know, I can't imagine going my entire life without anything. So, you know, I can imagine a week. I can imagine a month. So what does it feel like if you imagine going the next month without smoking a cigarette? Um. Ambivalence is viewed as normal, not pathological, and explored openly. And this is one, and I always draw a blank on uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, And you can Google it. He's on YouTube. Just an amazingly brilliant physician. Talks about ambivalence and addiction. But one video that is especially poignant, he says, you know, what we forget to ask is what was the benefit to the old behavior? They didn't do it just to make themselves miserable. So we need to ask them, what did you get out of it? Because most of the time people just ask you, what are the consequences? Let's look at what you're doing this and you're having all these negative problems, but then they forget that the people did it for a reason. So, and that reason was more rewarding, more motivating than the trouble or the trauma from the consequences. So we need to look at What's going on there? Because whatever purpose it was serving, you know, they may be afraid to give it up because it had a pretty strong function. Solutions are evoked from the client rather than provided. So I'm not going to say, Well, what you need to do. They've probably been told what they need to do by 17 people in Adam's house cat. And if those any of those people were right, they wouldn't be in your office. So instead, come from the perspective of when you've gone a day without smoking or when you've gone a, a day without being depressed or without blowing up at somebody, what was different? What did you do? What is it that you need to do or that you need to address in order to start changing your behavior and achieving whatever this goal is that you want, whether it's getting off probation or um, keeping your marriage together or getting your kids back or being happy, whatever it is. But I want to know, In the past when you've started working towards that goal what's worked and let's build on that and let's talk about what hasn't worked because then we can figure out why it hasn't worked and modify it you know i'm not talking about what hasn't worked so i can say well see you don't want to do that again uh, most of the time but we might talk about why that behavior seemed appealing what function it served, and what might be a different option this time. And I encourage them to brainstorm. And sometimes we brainstorm in session, and sometimes I have them make notes while we're going through, and I have them brainstorm between sessions. We want to support self-efficacy because people will not try to change unless they believe there's hope for success. Remember I said we don't want to disempower people. So what is it that they did? They came here. That took a lot of courage they're being honest with me and themselves that takes a lot of courage they may have had periods before where where they've been happy where they haven't been angry where they you know where the problem hasn't been there they were able to go that period we're not looking for perfection we're looking for progress so if you were able to go for an hour next time let's shoot for 2 hours if you were able to go for a week let's shoot for a week and a half you know i try to make it so it's probably doable goals. But we want to help people see that any positive change, no matter how short, is a positive change, and we can build on that. So remembering my old friend hardiness, control, commitment, and challenge, this also helps people establish hope and motivation and momentum. If people feel that they are able to make a change in something, they're able to improve something, they have hope that if they do the next right thing, whatever that is for them, that things will get better. And they have faith, whether it be in a higher power or in themselves and the program that they are choosing to create. This gives them a sense of control. It gives them a sense of, okay, it may not happen overnight, but I can make small positive changes. I see myself taking baby steps forward. Commitment. They need to think it's worthwhile. So that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. They're going to be committed and motivated to work on their goals. So, okay, I got that. Um, What are their goals and what are they committed to working on? And challenge is the one that's a little bit of a challenge, if you will. Because you don't want it to be too hard where it seems daunting. But you don't want it to seem so easy that they're like, well, I don't need therapy or i don 't need to start on this. think about you know when you were in college and you had to write a a paper and i 'm not going to say how long because some for some people a four page paper is overwhelming, and for some people it's you don't start getting overwhelmed till twenty pages but whatever it was, if you had an assignment, maybe it was an essay, half a page it didn 't have to be done till Friday. How tempting was it to put it off until Thursday night or maybe even Friday morning sometimes because you were like there's no challenge to that. I can do that in my sleep when I'm drooling on myself. Then people aren't motivated to get involved in it and to make it happen. And they're also not as committed to it. Um, So you want to have something that's a little bit of a challenge that says, you know, you've done this before, you know, for a day or for a week. Let's see if we can make it a week and a half. And our expression of faith and belief in the client that they can, choose an action and choose a direction and start taking steps forward will help support them this is where we can come in kind of like a coach and go you got this it's going to be hard i'm not telling you it's not hard but you've got this and i'm here to cheer you on and to help you when you have any setbacks and i'm not good with sports so i'm going to stay away from any sports metaphors i said earlier we were going to talk about the difference between some principal approaches Cognitive behavioral assumes that the client is motivated. When somebody comes in and we start talking about looking at the ABCs and challenging their cognitions and all that kind of stuff, we're assuming that they have the same motivation that we do and they want to change the same things we do. Um, motivational enhancement identifies what the client's motivated to change and starts building upon that. Explores and reflects the client's perception without correcting. Correcting. You know, even if it's like glaringly obvious that this person has a problem with methamphetamine, my arguing with them is just going to make them feel more disempowered and more misunderstood because, again, somebody telling them they're wrong and making them feel like they don't have a say. So I'm going to explore what they see. And then we may gently come back around to it later. In cognitive behavioral, you identify and modify maladaptive cognition. So we're looking at those going, now, can you see how that might have been a cognitive distortion and, you know, pull out your list and let's see which one that fit into. So we're really calling them out, um, which can feel um, overwhelming or shaming to some clients. Motivational enhancement elicits change from the client. We're saying, you've lived in your body for 20, 40, 50 years. You know yourself better than I do. You know what you've tried. You know what's worked and what's failed. That's awesome. And I can't possibly ask enough questions to know all that in 45 minutes. So I want to know what's worked for you or what you think might work for you. And let's work from there. Instead of going, well, this is the strategy that we're going to use because I see that your misery is caused by unhelpful thoughts. Um, And obviously, that boils both of these approaches to therapy down to like next to nothing. But we're just comparing kind of the highlights here. Um, And there is a place for CBT. And some people absolutely love and thrive on CBT as far as, you know, clients. So I'm not saying it's a bad approach. I'm saying that sometimes, especially when you're dealing with clients who are somewhat ambivalent, um, motivational enhancement may be more effective. Non-directive or Rogerian, if you want to think about it that way. The client determines the content and direction, which is okay, um, and it it can work. But again, if you're dealing with a client who is um, involuntary, or especially when you're dealing with clients with addictions, a lot of times they will tiptoe around that big issue a lot, and they will kind of lead you off onto these other branches if you're not skilled at bringing them back in. MET directs the client towards what they're motivated to change because generally what they're motivated to change in some way or another is going to align with what I think probably needs to change from my clinical standpoint, but we're going to do it their way. Um, Non-directive avoids injecting the counselor's advice and feedback, which it can be tempting to provide advice and feedback to kind of help move people along. Um, So in in motivational enhancement therapy, we do offer that advice and, and feedback. You know, we say, what I hear you saying is, so I'm wondering if any of these things might help. Or, you know, what I'm hearing is, you want to have this thing happen, and you're doing these behaviors, and I'm wondering how the two of those work together. So we're kind of pointing out the discrepancy and, Offering advice without being super confrontational. In non-directive, empathy is used non-contingently. And this is where some people have issues with motivation. MET. In MET, empathic reflection is used selectively to reinforce certain points. I want to reinforce self-efficacy. I want to reinforce statements that are toward positive change, positive for their, their goal set. So what do we do? And there's some building motivation statements, you know, there, go through a couple of them. Since you're here, I assume you've been having some concerns or difficulties related to your use or to your depression or whatever. Tell me about them. Um, so if you think that the client is there because of something, you know, if you have a referral from the physician that says, you know, this client seems to be addicted to pain meds or whatever... Um, you might say, since you're here, um, or I know your doctor referred you, and it sounds like he thinks that you're having some problems using your pain meds and that you might be becoming addicted to them. Tell me about you know, what you think is going on and you know, what your pain is like and how things are going. Instead of saying, your doctor says you're an addict, so we need to get you signed up. Tell me a little bit about your problem. Or your issue. And if we're talking about an addiction, we're going to say, what do you like about it? What's positive about it? Because there are positive things. But then we're also going to follow up with, what's the other side? What are your worries about it? Not, how are you hurting everybody else? Which comes back to guilting and shaming. But what are your concerns? So start out with the positive. Because most people have never asked them about the positive. So that will catch them off guard anyway. And they'll be like, oh, hey, you know. I can actually talk about this um, and then follow up with what are your concerns, not which is a gentler way of approaching what are the problems? Um, ask them about how their use or their problem has changed over time, and what things do you think could be problems or might become problems so I mean thinking about a client who has maybe generalized anxiety disorder, how has your anxiety changed over time, and what do you think? could be problems or might become problems because of your anxiety or prompting your anxiety? You tell me. Um, What have others said about your problem? Um, And what makes you think that perhaps you might need to take a different approach than you have? Now, when mental health clients come in um, or clients with mental health issues come in, generally they're not feeling really attached to that behavior they want to make it go away and they're there because they're miserable and they're going to tell you i i can't live like this anymore people with addictions on the other hand um may have a lot more ambivalence so we want to talk about you know you have this thing that you're kind of ambivalent about giving it up what makes you think that you might need to make a change in it you know because you're here so that tells me that something's prompting you to actually be here and ask for help. We can also look at tolerance if we're talking about substances, memory issues, how whatever the issue is, is affecting the person's relationships. If you have a client who has a lot of generalized anxiety, they may be really draining on some of their significant others because they're worried all the time and they may feel The significant others may either feel suffocated or they may feel like they've got a caretake for someone who is just frightened of everything. So we want to know, how is this problem, whatever it is, affecting your relationships? How is it, and it's not on here, but you know when I go to relationships, I go to self-esteem because that's your relationship with yourself. So how is this problem affecting your self-esteem and how you feel about yourself? Is it causing any health problems? Now, addiction, we can talk about any health problems that might be. But when we're talking about depression or anxiety, we've also got sleep changes, eating changes, gastrointestinal disruption, um, reduced libido. There's all kinds of physical side effects or symptoms of some of these things. So, if we can identify any that they might be problematic for them, it could serve to kind of start moving that pendulum. If they've had any legal or financial problems, as a result of this behavior. And again, we've talked about decisional balance before, but basically you draw a nice little, whatever this is, uh, three by three table, and you put on the, the column side, keep doing whatever they're doing or change. And then the benefits and the consequences. So when we're talking about, for example, drinking, we're going to look at the benefits of continuing to drink because they're doing it for a reason. And let's let's be honest about what those benefits are, because we can't address them, and that's going to be a huge relapse trap if we don't address them. What are your consequences or concerns about keeping drinking? And then we'll talk about stopping drinking. You know, if you stopped, you know, maybe even for a month, what do you think the benefits might be? And what are your concerns about giving this up? Again, the benefits to the current behavior – and the fears of the new behavior are going to be your biggest relapse traps so we need to make sure to mitigate as many of those as possible if somebody has you know an attachment to whatever this is we want to ask them why um, when we come to providing information and advice we might ask them you know what is it how are you defining this problem you know if you say I'm not an addict okay what i'm seeing is these behaviors right here that you're telling me have happened and your use patterns um so i'm wondering how that differs from your definition of being an addict and you've got to find your own flow it's hard for me to kind of make up the decision the discussion as we go along so they don't feel like you're telling them that they're wrong but have them play Columbo. that's the best way to say it if any of you have ever watched Columbo. You know, I'm kind of confused here. Or help clarify this for me. The advantages of empathy, you know, we know empathy is good. It makes people feel all warm and fuzzy and yada, yada, yada. But there are also some advantages to it, especially when you're using sort of selective empathy. We're still giving positive regard. It's just not positive regard for everything you say. It's unlikely to evoke resistance if you say, you know, that's a really good point. They're probably not going to go, What do you mean that's a good point? It encourages the client to keep talking and exploring the topic. Generally, if you reward or reinforce something somebody's saying, then they're going to keep going down that path. So it keeps the momentum going. It communicates respect and caring and builds an alliance. It clarifies for the therapist exactly what the client means. So if we're providing accurate empathy and reflecting and summarizing, Then we're clarifying them along the way to make sure we're still on the same page and we understand where that person is coming from. And we can use empathy, especially with summaries and reflection, to reinforce ideas expressed by the client. So, you know, what I'm hearing is you're just really desperate to get your kids back right now. Okay. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to go to any further explanation than that. Just periodically stop and summarize what you're hearing that will probably motivate them to move toward that goal that they've identified. This helps clients not only hear themselves saying a self-motivational statement, but they also hear you saying that they said it. So instead of, you know, later being able to say, "Well, I never said that." When you paraphrase it back and you say, "What I hear you saying is," or "So I just heard you say blah," um, and that's that's really awesome. So add that positive regard in there, they hear that, oh, yeah, I did say that. Um, Affirmation strengthens the working relationship, enhances a sense of self-responsibility and empowerment. It's the, I know you can do this, the, I think I can. And, you know, the little engine that could, going all the way up the hill, he wasn't getting very far very fast, but with every turn of the wheel, he said, I think I can. And that's what we're talking about in behavior change. It's not going to happen overnight but we want them to believe that they can get to the top of that hill. Um, And we'll do that by providing um, self-motivational statements, reinforcing effort. You know, even if they backslide a little bit, you know, they make a bad, unhelpful choice, and they come to counseling the next day and they go, or the next week, and they go, you know what, I did this. And you're like, all right, you did. So what can we learn from it? And, you know, I really appreciate Or it took a lot of courage to come in here and tell me that, so let's figure out what to do about it and move on from there. So we want to help them see motivation. We want to help them stay moving forward and not getting stuck. This will also support their self-esteem and their belief that they can accomplish things. Some examples of affirmation. I appreciate you hanging in there through this feedback, which must be pretty rough for you. So at the end of a session, you know, if you've done all your assessment and Um, you're writing your your cumulative summary or whatever you call it, comprehensive summary, Um, you may be summarizing some high points. You know, I don't usually write mine until after the client leaves, but I've got the main points right there. And I summarize with the client what I heard him or her saying. Um, But then I also try to provide some reinforcement that this took a lot of courage. And I know it was really tough for you to hear some of this um, and really actually confront it. It's like putting it down in black and white. Um, Let's see what we can do together to make this change. When clients start resisting, um, which is interrupting, cutting off, or talking over the therapist, we've all had that happen, arguing, challenging the therapist, discounting the therapist's views, disagreeing, open hostility, sidetracking, defensiveness, any of this, and we've all experienced some of this at one point or another, we want to understand that they're stopping us for a reason. we either have missed something and they want us to go back and hear it, or we missed something and we're just not getting it, so they're getting frustrated and they're feeling unsupported and unheard. so we may want to go back and go, okay, I, let me see what it is that that I missed here and I'm not going to say that to them that's what I'm saying in my head is clearly, I got off track somewhere, let me figure out why the client is suddenly not willing to go any further. Think about it as a donkey. Donkeys don't, um, their night and day vision, light and dark vision doesn't change very quickly. They've got really big eyes, but it doesn't change quickly. So when we walk our donkeys into the barn, we generally don't have the light on and they're going from daylight into a dusky looking barn. I mean, we've got the doors open and the windows, but it's still not nearly as daylight out there. So they can't see. And the first, you know, dozen times I tried to get them into the barn, we got to the barn door just fine, and then they put on the brakes. And they're mini donkeys, but they're still 400 pounds. And when a 400-pound donkey says he don't want to do something, he ain't going to do it. So I, you know, instead of viewing it as resistance, which I'll admit I did the first dozen times, I started asking, what is it that I'm missing? Things were going well, and then they get to this point, and they just stop. So I did some reading, and I learned, because the donkey can't tell me, that they couldn't see. Oh, that made so much more sense. So we started turning on the light before we brought them into the barn, and they got used to it. And lo and behold, that problem was changed. So look at resistance as a learning opportunity for us, a learning opportunity to figure out what we missed. We don't want to argue, judge, criticize, blame, warn of negative consequences, You know, I am going to have you violated if you don't come to group. They know that. So instead of being authoritative or authoritarian, I always get those mixed up. Instead of being a, you know, big old bully, instead backing up and saying, I'm wondering why your motivation is waning to try to achieve this because I know you are so excited to get off probation or excited to achieve your goal. So effective responses would be just, a simple reflection the client says I don't think I've got a drinking problem we would say so far as you can see there really haven't been any problems because of your drinking it's about the same thing but there's just a little bit of amplification double-sided reflection and this is my favorite it's the on the one hand there are the benefits to using or these things are going well or people are telling you this but on the other hand So, we're really emphasizing or highlighting the ambivalence here so we can talk about it and figure out how to tip the scales in the motivational direction. We can also shift focus away from the problematic issue. If they say, you know, I can't go the rest of my life without drinking or without smoking a cigarette, put on the brakes here, slow your roll. We're getting way ahead of things here. I'm not talking about quitting drinking right now. I'm just trying to figure out what we need to do today to help you. Get off, get off probation today to help you achieve whatever this goal is that you said um, motivated you to come in here today. So let's just focus on that for right now. And then, you know, we can talk about the rest of it later if you decide to. A lot of times that gives clients a sense of relief because they're so far focused in the future and they start freaking out going, I can't, I haven't been able to go an hour without a drink, let alone the rest of my life. We can reframe behaviors. Placing current problems in a more positive frame communicates that the problem is solvable and changeable. So instead of saying, you know, sticking with addiction, um, you are using right now, you have an addiction and you're always going to have an addiction. Reframing it and saying, you've been using because you have got a bunch of stress and anxiety and you know it's the only thing that stopped your pain for right now so but you're ready to start learning some new tools and maybe looking to change the way you handle things well that's a whole different approach so we want to look at putting it in terms of something that's solvable and changeable and use the client's own words as much as possible instead of trying to pathologize it or make it clinical or use dark jargon or or labels. Remember that drinking can serve an adaptive function for avoiding conflict or fitting in at work. So if we hear that, we're going to paraphrase it. So the only way you feel like you can be, be yourself around people is if you have a few shots beforehand, you know, okay. So I'm wondering what you would like to do about that. And finally, summarizing, incorporate summary statements, like I said, throughout the session in order to make sure that not only are you hearing everything right, but they're hearing themselves, and it's staying kind of on track, and they're staying present. Um, summarize both motivational statements and statements of re- reluctance. So if they say that they're not sure about something, you can paraphrase that, you know, I hear you're really concerned that, blah, blah. It doesn't mean that you're backing them up or taking away their power. You're acknowledging that they're a little scared, and that's okay. If they're not scared, I'd be more worried. When a client stops resisting and raising objections and yes, butting you, they're generally ready for change. Interestingly, they often stop asking as many questions. They're ready to learn, they're ready to get moving. So they're not asking questions all around. They may ask about recovery techniques but it becomes less about keeping a superficial dialogue and more about really getting to the meat and potatoes. The client often appears more settled and peaceful and may make motivational statements indicating they're willing to change. That, you know, I'm I'm starting to think that this might work for me. Okay, awesome. You know, tell me more about that. Once we get to that point, we want to shift from talking about reasons for change to negotiating a plan. Ask for their perceptions of what they need to do and communicate that they've got free choice. So I'm not going to hand them a pre-written treatment plan and go, okay, we'll sign you up for IOP. What I want to do is talk about what do you think you need to do? What's the next step? You know, and we use the ASAM in the places that I've worked, which is a patient that patient, yeah, patient placement criteria form that helps you identify whether somebody should be an outpatient, intensive outpatient, or residential. And I will show them that sheet, and we will go through it together, and I'll say, well, according to this, you would probably be best served at this level of treatment if this, you know, assuming that substance abuse reduction was their goal. However, I'm wondering what you think you need and what is going to work for you in this current situation. We want to communicate that nobody can decide what's going to be best for them, but them. And if they change their mind later, that's okay. You know, maybe they'll go out there and say, I only need IOP. I don't need residential. And as a therapist, we can advise them of, you know, the fact that we think they may need more, but we will support them in IOP because I'd love to be proven wrong. And I tell them that. I'm like, you know, this is part art, part science, and if you can do it in IOP, that is just amazing so i will support you on that but if you change your mind you know we can get you onto the list for residential and have them list all of the things that contribute to their problem and identify which ones are modifiable because again that gives them something to hold on to something to look at something to say all right this over here i can't change right now but this over here i can do something about they have a better idea of where to devote their energy and then have them how they identify how they think the modifiable factors should be addressed and in what order because you can't address them all at once. So what's the first thing you're going to work on and what do you think you need to do to work on it? The change plan worksheet that they can do, um, and I usually have my clients do this. Again, I don't use the motivational enhancement therapy protocol. I use a motivational interviewing approach to traditional outpatient. Um, I have them do this every week. The changes I want to make are, the most important reasons I want to make these changes are, the steps I want to take, the other people that can help me right now, I will know this plan is working when, and some things that could interfere with my plan are. Now, if they're in IOP, especially since they're there every day, um, a lot of times I'll have them fill this out once, but then we review it every single week and they make changes as necessary because sometimes they need to change what their goal is or what they're working on right now because life happens and that's okay. But I also want to keep the focus or keep a focus on the reason they came to treatment. So maybe substance abuse reduction, but then all of a sudden they have some legal issues come up and they really need to deal with those. Okay. Well, that becomes problem number 1 and the substance abuse. We want to at least maintain sobriety where we're at right now. So we want to keep focusing on those. Ask the client for commitment, have them clarify what they plan to do and reinforce what they perceive to be likely benefits of making a change as well as the consequences of inaction. So what do you think the benefits are of this change? And, you know, and you're doing it and you're You're doing all this because you think if you don't, these things are going to happen. Review one more time any obstacles, concerns, fears, or doubts they might have because now's the time to talk about it and to mitigate them or to help them mitigate them. Clarify how to deal with those. So you're developing and all of your level of care guidelines for the insurance says start relapse prevention planning at day one. So that's what we're doing here. We're identifying anything that might cause a relapse and figuring out how to mitigate that now instead of oops when it happens or worse yet, after it happens. If a significant other is involved, clarify that person's role in helping the client and remind both of them that you'll be seeing the client for follow-up visits. Um, And again, if it's MET, follow-up is scheduled for week six and 12. If it's weekly, Then, you know, obviously that's going to depend on your protocol, how often you see them. But, you know, if the SO is involved, especially in substance abuse, obviously you want to be seeing both of them occasionally, at least to touch base. The significant other can provide an alternative point of view during the assessment and service supporting function in identifying motivating statements outside the session. So the significant other can be the cheerleader. They can be the one that's going, you know, come on, Jim Bob. When, when we were in the therapist's office, you said that you wanted to do this for these reasons, and I know it is hard right now. So what can we do to make it a little bit easier? And there's a bunch of questions you can ask the significant other. Um, emphasis is placed on positive attempts to deal with the problem. This is not an intervention. We don't want to have the um, identified patient feel like they're being hen So we really want to reframe any distressing things that come up is, you know, unfortunately, that's not all that unusual in families with addiction or in families with a person that has schizophrenia. Um, So we want to prevent overwhelming or alienating the client. A follow-up note can help by encouraging the client to come back. And this, even if they're coming back next week, getting a follow-up note from you that says, I enjoyed meeting you today. Restating some of their affirmations and what they wanted to work on um, and a statement of optimism and hope Nobody's probably ever done that for them before so that'll probably get them to go You know what maybe this person is actually invested in me and not just a paycheck Review progress and problems and renew motivation every time you see the client and redo commitment reinforce their self-efficacy so every time at the end of every session just kind of go over what were your goals for last week? What did you accomplish? What challenges did you have? How did you handle them? What's your plan for next week? And, you know, a little supportive statement at the end. When you terminate, review, and recapitulate I like that word, I don't know why. Um, you want to help the client see how far that they have come and know in their heart, feel self efficacious to be able to continue with this process without being in therapy, but know that they can come back should they need a a tune-up or need some intervention at some point. Um, And at termination is also a good time to ask one more time, is there anything that you're concerned about? Are there any obstacles that we might need to address? Generally at termination, they've got the skills. So what I'm doing is kind of prodding and going, don't forget about, let's talk about it. How can you handle it? And they generally have the answers. I just want to make sure that they know they have the answers. If they're missing appointments, we want to clarify the reasons that they missed the appointment. Again, affirm them for coming. Reinforce the fact that it's, it's, you're um, concerned about them and you really want to help them make this change. And try to reschedule the appointment. And sometimes clients may drop out because they're not satisfied with treatment. They wanted something else. So we can affirm that, Um, and we can explore reasons that they were dissatisfied with treatment and either make a referral, address the relationship between us, or, you know, figure out what to do so the client isn't left abandoned. MET can effectively be used with any patient who is medically and psychologically stable. The focus is on eliciting self-motivational statements, exploring ambivalence, and remember, really looking at mitigating some of those reasons that might lead to a relapse, empowering the client to make positive changes, enlisting the support of significant others, and encouraging continued follow-through even after treatment is over, because they can do it. They just may need a little bit of encouragement. What questions do you have? If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe either in your podcast player or on YouTube.